0: You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Richard Norton. So today we're joined by Dr. Richard Norton. Dr. Norton is a professor of National Security Affairs at the United States Naval War College. And what we'll be talking about today is his concept of feral cities. So, Dr. Norton, let's jump right in. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us how you started looking at cities and how you coined the term feral cities?
1: I sure can, but my interest in this particular topic goes back to the year 2000. And I was in South Africa with my wife at a conference, and it it occurred to me that there was something going on that we hadn't seen before. And the spark was the South Africans moving their stock exchange from downtown Johannesburg to Santon, which is about 20 miles away, and they did it for security reasons. That's the equivalent of moving the New York Stock Exchange from where it is now to Rye, New York. It was also apparent that the central business district was underpopulated, and the more I looked around, I began to think, was it possible that we would see cities beginning to slip out of the control of their owning states, but yet still play a role in international relations? And to the degree that the term feral cities was selected, partly I think it it was descriptive of something that had been domesticated and was becoming wild. But also, to be honest, it was a great hook. It was one of those titles that kind of sells itself.
0: Yeah, for sure. I'm pretty familiar with the international relations research in failed states and kind of what that means. So, I mean, what is a feral city? I mean, how do you define it? How do you categorize it? How is it different than a failed state?
1: Sure, and my interest in feral cities kind of came at the high watermark of other scholars' interest in failed states. But the idea was a feral city is one that is still contained within the territory of a sovereign state. Think Mobile, Alabama or Baltimore. But yet within the city confines, the state was unable to execute its writ of law and security, et cetera. that something else governed the city. And in some cases, it was because the forces that were indigenous to the city were capable of withstanding those of the state. And in other cases, it's because over time, the state had lost the political will to, in effect, take care of its own city or had becoming capable of doing so. And the more I looked, the more I became convinced that this was actually happening. And it continues to do so today. Although, much like failed states, we haven't seen that many, but there are those who are clearly fragile states or faltering states. And there are cities in the world that are approaching ferality much more than others are.
0: So when you say state, you don't necessarily mean like nation state, you mean government.
1: Correct. That's an excellent point. So if for some reason Paris were to become a feral city, it would still fall within the territory of France, but the French government would not be able to execute governance over some or all of Paris.
0: Okay. I found it kind of interesting in your definition about the, but still remains connected to the international community, or you, at one point, I think you say globally connected. Can you give me a definition of what, what you mean by globally connected? Sure.
1: If you think back in the past, some of the great pirate cities, Port Royal, Jamaica, was connected to the larger global commerce because of it was a port. And so ships could come in and out. Today, some of the cities I think that you look at and see, these could be feral or have been or are becoming feral. They're connected by air, sometimes by road and rail, sometimes by port but always by internet and cyber. At the time I wrote this, the idea was, hey, you know, with a panel truck and a satellite phone, you could run a worldwide enterprise from a feral city. And today I would say, you don't need a panel truck. You just need basically a briefcase and a laptop. So that city, although it may be lacking in governance and not providing security, is still connected. And an example was Mogadishu. For a long time, Mogadishu was the poster child of feral cities because the state had failed, but yet there were still daily flights into Mogadishu Airport. Mogadishu University still taught classes, although from time to time, the students and the professors would take cover because of automatic weapons fire. They were connected by road and rail, and they were connected by internet. And so that's an example how you really, once you're on the grid, it's hard to get off the grid. The days of Tiananmen Square, where the Chinese could pretty well isolate Beijing, Beijing, that's over.
0: So I think you mentioned that you originally wrote the first version of this in 2003. And as we're recording this, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic is not even, some believe, at the peak of its bell curve. But it jumped right out at me at rereading your work that you said these feral cities, outside of a kind of loss of security and governance, are also at risk as incubators and spreaders of pandemics. I mean, exact wording in your paper. So what is kind of the genesis of COVID-19 from Wuhan and the evolution of it in your work with feral cities and really the future of pandemics?
1: That's a great question. Um, And the first thing I would say is COVID-19 is so new that we just don't have the data to make any kind of accurate predictions or even analysis right now. But I do think there is the, the idea, rather, that these cities could become petri dishes of disease bears thinking about. And Wuhan is not a feral city. But it does show, as did SARS and MERS before, it shows the danger of the spread of pandemic in cities themselves. Now, cities that aren't feral, we'll take New York, Uh, we know a lot about the statistical progress of the disease in New York because good records are kept. A feral city is not known for really strong administration. So it is very possible that something could originate in a feral city and we wouldn't know. And we wouldn't know exactly how bad the situation was in a feral city until potentially years afterwards. So I think we're in that stage right now in early days yet. But I think given the lack of government resources, given the lack of health services, given the just the, the lack of control, that a feral city would be particularly susceptible to pandemics.
0: Yeah. I actually saw some very interesting recent research just because pandemics are so hot. So everybody's digging up kind of the research and me as an urban warfare researcher, the urban stuff jumps out at me. How you know increased global urbanization is increasing the number of COVID type of diseases that are occurring just because of the urban sprawl and urban expansions bleeding more into the natural habitats of wild animals, and then the correlation, and that causes this incubator to continue to flourish, and more and more of these diseases. Really, that's the kind of the expert recommendation is, yes, we have to defeat COVID-19, but you better get ready for much more versions of COVID.
1: I think that's exactly right. The UN, for example, says 75% of the humans on this planet will live in an urban environment by the year 2050. And there are parts of the world where 75% of the population are already urban dwellers. When you pack people in that tightly, unless you have an extraordinarily well-administered and very robust health system, it just stands the reason that, a new disease, be it pandemic or otherwise, that gets loose is going to wreak havoc until it's eventually brought under control. And I think we're seeing that. And you're absolutely right, by the way, as bad as COVID nineteen is, we don't know what the next pandemic will be like. And I think we could probably withstand the flu of nineteen nineteen, but for the time, it killed twenty million people. So it could be far worse, and it may be in future.
0: I had the opportunity, amazing opportunity actually, to go study the attacks of Mumbai. I wouldn't put it on the feral spectrum, but sanitation in that city and essential services are a huge issue. Slums over a million people, and I was like I should have been just a little taken back by the kind of the sanitation issues. And now looking back at the spread of disease in an environment like that, and how it would just be a rapid fire.
1: I agree, and Mumbai is a is a great example in many ways. If there, as you point out, the slum of Darvai has more than a million residents. Local governance, the state of India has allowed kind of a people's court to be established in some of these areas, NGOs team through these populations, and you could argue that it's a good deal for the state, but in some ways, if the state is letting others handle social issues, health issues, you can argue that there's a weakening of the social contract between state and population. And again, I would not say Mumbai is a feral city, but I think if you group cities into green, red, and yellow, kind of the traditional stoplight approach, that some of the larger megacities uh, by nature are kind of yellow tending in a, in a not so positive direction. But it'll be really interesting, and that's a sound macabre, but it'll be really interesting to see which cities handle the pandemic better than others and which societies do. So Mumbai would be definitely on the list of cities I'd want to see, what the statistics finally are and what the results were and and even with a more granularity, what part of the city was most affected, et cetera, what populations. But I'm not an epidemiologist.
0: No, no, n- neither am I. <laughs> I do love to study cities, and I'm not even an urbanist or an urban planning science. I actually just listened to a good friend of mine, Max Brooks, You know, from his book, World War Z. He's getting a lot of attention about how he chose the zombie apocalypse. But it had a rule kind of start to it. And his explanation was really, if you look at some of the most vicious diseases in history that are still ongoing, some of them can be controlled because they're found in, let's say, African villages where they're just not globally connected. So it's it's a lot easier to the World Health Organization to get in there, control it. Because of urbanization, that's just not possible in most of the world today.
1: I think you're right. In fact, it's both, I think, on point, but also humorous that you mentioned Max Brooks. Uh, Several presidents of the War College ago, we had a a president, Phil Weiskopf, who was very far-seeing and was not an in-the-box thinker at all. It was a real talent. He brought Max in to talk about World War Z. So you might imagine you have Max Brooks, of all people, addressing a large audience of pretty buttoned-down, short-haired military people and those who were. It was a great presentation. And the, the immediate linkages between a pandemic or a threat with which we were not prepared and Brooks's book was excellent.
0: So I watched that video from the Naval War College of him talk, and then asked him to come. I was at the time working for the chief of staff of the army in the strategic studies group, asked him to come talk to our group because of that video. And then when I got to the Modern War Institute, asked him to come to the military academy. And now he's been a non-resident fellow since the Modern War Institute started. So he's a very close friend and a, like you said, a, a very brilliant mind.
1: Yeah. You're lucky to know him that well. That's super.
0: Yeah. So one of the points back to like controlling a disease or controlling the city in general, much of your kind of definition of feral cities is about control, security or, or power, let's say. And we just talked about Mumbai, where there's agreements with the slums and the slums setting up their own courts and helping themselves in some ways. Is the lack of governmental control of of so many things a bad thing? And the only reason I say that, for instance, with COVID-19 giving us a great case study to look at, we're seeing a bunch of gangs and power structures enforcing COVID-19 social distancing, such as the gangs at Rio de Janeiro are in the news lately about being very vicious about their follow these rules or else.
1: I think that's one of the more interesting things we're going to see as a result of this. And Rio and the favelas of Brazil have certainly been informal cities that fit a pattern of governance, which I would call patchwork. The state, in this case, Brazil, controls much of the city of Rio. But there are neighborhoods where you would argue that the state's ability to provide security, policing services is pretty close to zero, or certainly contested on a daily basis. And you have everything from theft of electricity to informal medical services being sanctioned and provided by the controlling gang members. And it's easy to understand how if you live in that area, you have to make some pretty stark choices. When the local gang rep comes to you and says, hey, you know, we've got the the clinic on the corner and you're safe as long as you follow our rules, it's pretty hard not to follow those rules. And I'm reminded I was talking to a friend on the Providence Council for Foreign Relations, and he said, look, my daughter goes to one of the worst favelas in Rio every year. I think it was Alamo. And she's never been molested. And I said, well, why is that? It's well, because the local warlord, basically, through so the drug lord, has put the word out that nobody touches her or they answer to his wrath because he likes the idea that the population sees him as opposed to Brazil as providing these health services. And when your abuela needs her foot looked after, you'll call the person who does it successfully doctor, whatever their degrees are or whatever. So... But I, I think this idea of the gangs policing, it's in their self-interest, but it, it, it does raise really interesting questions about how does the city work. And it, it may not be a bad thing. A city that has run by civil society could be potentially very safe and, and kind of very human security oriented, although I, I don't think I've seen that yet. There are other ramifications. You're an urban warfare specialist, and you know as well as anybody How difficult combat in an urban environment is, and if 70% of the world's people live in an urban environment and war remains in human activity between humans, whether the army wants to or the Marines want to or any service wants to, and they don't, they're going to have to fight in cities. And I know that the army and the Marines particularly have looked at combat in megacities, and that's a daunting issue.
0: Yeah. The complexities of understanding the powers that we're talking about keeps coming up on the podcast series. And I actually just published something a couple of months ago about the just my own personal experience with the gangs of Baghdad and how we co-opted those in order to achieve some short-term security gains just to let other security functions start to develop. And that jumped out at me too in your paper about this topic where a military may try to force power or control onto a city such as a feral city, but doing so could lead to basically having to use extreme force and what I always say, destroy the city to save it because we're not understanding these pre-existing non-governmental power structures.
1: I think that's exactly right, which speaks directly to the need for cultural expertise, for diplomatic piece of this. I mean, as an example, when the Marines retook Fallujah, they did it successfully and war breeds ferality and cities in war tend to be feral. But in order to retake Fallujah, by estimates, the Marines Seriously damaged eighty five percent of the buildings in the city. That's a pretty steep price to pay for taking back urban landscapes.
0: I'll ask you that question because I've I've kind of toyed with this. It goes back to the depth of failed state research for the foreign area officer, the FAO that you you mentioned. That's really focused on country level and most of our kind of our diplomatic relations and understanding of other. Environments are usually start at the nation level, and most of your foreign area officers are aligned to countries, maybe regions, but never cities. And that's some of our research on megacities. Uh, we sent a team into Dhaka, and the country team didn't understand really how Dhaka worked because they're, you know, they're prioritized on the country. And I asked the same question when I was in in India, like, who's your kind of Mumbai experts? From a kind of outsider's perspective, of course, if you go to the the city administration of Mumbai, they'll understand the city, how it works. But how are we doing on developing expertise in major urban areas, even if it's feral cities?
1: I guess my quick answer is, I don't know, but I'm not encouraged by what I run into. I think it's not just your experiences with the embassies. In some ways, it's a reflection of international relations. If you think about the three great levels of analysis, there's systemic. So we look at the world as an interrelated part, and there's different theories about how the world works. And then level two, as you pointed out, is state-centric. So it's the nature of the government. It's how bureaucracies work within the state. And then actually level three is systemic. Level two is state. And then level one be the, the individual. So we look at leaders and important personages to figure out how things go. There may be a different level or a sub-level between state and individual, and that could be the megacity. I think we collectively have not looked at that level very much. Now, first off, apologies to those who are urban scientists and who are urbanists and futurists who are specializing in cities, but I think the larger discipline is still coming to grips with what it is to have a megacity, what is the impact of a megacity. Obviously, the Army has specialized interest in them, but Everything from sanitation to health to education, uh, the idea of of urban hypertrophy and and explosive demographic growth. These are all things we're witnessing. And uh, and the number of experts, and thankfully there are some, I think are comparatively few.
0: Of course, most of the combatant commands have major cells that are looking at the major issues and working on relationships that Within the combatant commands, the U.S. Pacific Command comes to mind where when General Brown was there, he had multiple conferences on, hey, I have you know over 30 of the world's megacities or this number, I forget what that number was, within my area of operation, and we're going to focus on this. So I won't say that they're not focused on that, but it really does point on how we understand them. In your research, you actually did create a, a metric or a taxonomy that could give a warning to a city becoming feral. Is that right?
1: I did. And uh, it's been modified over the years. But uh, I'd come back at you, and not to push back hard, PACOM's a great example of a commander who understood the issue. But even as you found out, I would think even in PACOM, with that with that attention, if you said, okay, tell me who's important in Manila. Tell me how Manila really works. If I had to, not that we would, but if I had to occupy Manila, where are the equivalents of the gangs or the unions or the leaders Who would be able to put Manila back together. And maybe we're smarter than we when we rolled into Basra and to Baghdad, but that's asking for a lot of knowledge and a very few people. And I just don't know that it's as widespread as it could be. But to go back to your question of the diagnostic tool, as I was going through thinking about how to recognize a feral city and what would be important, I initially came up with four categories. There was governance, security, services, and then industry. And I, I thought, okay, in a healthy city, you would have a stable government, uh, hopefully democratic, but didn't have to be. The people would trust the government. The government would feel a responsibility to the people. Services would be deep and resilient. So, And they would range from everything from trash pickup to sewage, to schools and education, to ambulance services, but also some of the more exotic things we don't think about, like parks and museums and the accessibility of these other things to the people who lived in the city. And then on the question of of industry, a healthy city would have investment, both domestic and foreign. It would have a stable tax base. Uh, people could find work. You wouldn't have massive youth unemployment. And this is kind of the, if not utopian, at least a very strong and healthy city. The police forces would be adequate to the need. They would ethically behave. They would, and that's not to say that there would never be a corrupt cop or a turned lawyer. These things happen everywhere. But that when those things occurred, they would be the exception more than the rule. And they would probably be be self-reported or there'd be other mechanisms to identify the problem and deal with it. Over time, I've come to add civil society as a fifth indicator. And in in the healthiest of cities, civil society and civil society organizations work with government. They perform watchdog functions. They support and reinforce each other. There's a healthy dialogue. And then if you want to contrast these kind of categories, in a feral city, there is very little civil society. It tends to be based on clan or ethnicity or some form of other identity. The security forces are simply another gang vying for power among many. The services, either you contract them privately or you go without for the most part. And then in terms of governance, it's weak or non-existent and, or it's alternately governed, either through gangs or perhaps terrorist organizations or village village councils. And then in terms of investment, and here I was wrong, I would thought the only businesses you would find in a feral city would be um, illicit. So drugs, arms sales, smuggling, all of that would go on. What I didn't realize, and I I do now, is that there are some legitimate businesses that would find the atmosphere of a feral city conducive. And if you look at, again, Mogadishu, perhaps, um, there are cell phone towers over Mogadishu. And these are not fly-by-night companies. These are are reputable companies. And in some ways, working in Mogadishu is liberating. There's no OSHA. There's very few controls. If you don't have a lot of plant to put in, there's money to be made. Uh, Granted, the the ways of moving money may be a combination of modernity and and kind of very old traditional patterns. But you you do see that. And other things that surprised me, again, Mogu, the University of Mogadishu, was a going concern uh, because Frail cities aren't empty, and people are social creatures, and parents want their kids to have a better life. So you know, Mogadishu University was educating children or educating young adults uh, during some of its most darkest times. So there there is an economy, and it's not just a subsistence or an illegal one, although you're not going to find major manufacturing because the risk to the, to the owners is simply
0: too high. So I, I actually, I loved your taxonomy, the you know the red, yellow, green. I'm an old infantryman. It's very basic to me. As you were kind of researching and developing, were there existing indexes or existing databases that, that would feed into this? And the, the one that comes to mind is the Corruption Perception Index done by Transparency International, but that's really focused at country level, right?
1: It is. Uh, there are there are some, but there was none that were as integrated as what I was trying to get at. And anybody that tries to make a unified field theory of anything is going to take some criticism from specialists. For example, there's, there's certainly a lot of data on cities with high crime rates. And that alone is not enough to say a city's feral, but the, the 50 most dangerous cities in the world are always kind of interesting to look at. And I think there is at least some correlation between the degree of violence because it does suggest a breakdown of civil authority, a, a trust of civil society, et cetera, and a move toward ferality. One of the things that I thought was kind of interesting when I came up with my first piece on this and in my initial research, I really kind of came away saying this is never going to happen in the United States. And because as, as the research got out, people would come to me and go, you know, Rick, East L.A., that's a feral city. And I go, no, well, it really isn't, because the mayor of L.A. has plenty of forces to deal with East L.A., if the city had the political will to do so. And if the, state didn't have, the city didn't have it, the state does, and if the state does, not the country does. And there may be very good reasons for not turning a piece of a city into a war zone. But there were other cities that that didn't apply, but I thought never in the United States. And then Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, where I went to undergrad and my family has deep roots. And for at least five days, the United States cannot extend the rule of law into some of the city. And it wasn't because of gangs or it was just... The, the devastation wrought by the, the hurricane had had simply precluded that and, and things that people never thought of. Uh, the New Orleans police had gone to battery-charged radios because that's a lot cheaper than buying 1,000 batteries a month. Uh, well, once the, once the charging stations go underwater, you lose your communications. So that was really kind of an eye-opener for me. And so uh, under certain circumstances, uh, you know, perhaps the big scary one is the, the killer earthquake in California or the, the Yellowstone caldera blowing, that you could have uh, very uh, developed societies developed countries experiencing moments of virality within their cities.
0: Yeah, so it's a live assessment.
1: Absolutely. If you if you look at it as a snapshot, you are bound to to make, I think, erroneous conclusions because cities if there's a spectrum and We'll say for the sake of our arguments, dark red is really bad and bright green is really good. Cities do travel up and down these things, and people have the ability to change directions. If you look at New York, we may remember Ronald Reagan giving a very inspirational speech from one of the more devastated and blighted portions of the city, and there were actually negotiations between city governance and the local gangs. Well, that part of the city is now wonderful, I'm told. New York itself is, I think, much greener than it was perhaps when President Reagan spoke there. There are other cities, I think, I mentioned Joburg and Durban when I first looked at in South Africa. And I think both those cities have shown significant improvement as governments become better. But there are still questions about, you know, is the city getting better? Is it staying stagnant? So I think very much it is a trend analysis, not a single mosaic.
0: No, I I get to kind of the shock, and there's a lot of research in that, right? Especially major urban areas, their fragility and their ability to take a shock and not slide down that that spectrum too much, versus a, you know, like you said, a major urban area that just is in the red and for the foreseeable future is going to stay in the red. So I'm sure you get this question all the time, and I know Mogadishu is was one of your inaugural kind of examples. Have there been other ones since your kind of initial? term definition that have fallen into red and are, looks like they're going to stay in red?
1: I think Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And that's a personal opinion. And it, it's not necessarily a knock on the, on the modern Haitian government and the efforts of Haitians to recover. But between, I would say, the double whammy of, of corrupt governance and then the devastation of the earthquake, that's, that's hard to come back from, particularly if there already are informal systems of governance in place. I think Lagos is a, is a city to watch just because it, it got so big so fast. The southern tier of the United States, the northern tier of Mexico, and again, predominantly due to cartels and drug violence, that's an extraordinarily destabilizing influence in the region. And I think we do not give the Mexican government and the Mexican people enough credit for combating that threat. They've lost the equivalent of several divisions over the last decade or so trying to do so. I think it's easier for us to just to kind of say, well, that's too bad it's their problem. But I think it's a trans-border problem. It's becoming more and more of a trans-border problem. And so I think cities such as Nuevo Laredo, Tijuana... The the border cities are becoming are moving in a a negative direction, despite the best efforts and the continuing efforts of the Mexican government to change that.
0: Yeah, and I remember from your kind of initial two thousand three research, Mexico City was in the was in a yellow was the yellow kind of example.
1: Right, and Mexico City is one of the ones one of the, the cases that led me to say something else is going on here because at the time I wrote that there were 91,000 policemen in Mexico City. And that's more policemen than Canada had soldiers. And confidence in the police force was a problem. Uh, they had Mexican senators getting up and denouncing the police as another gang, et cetera. But Mexico City hasn't slid into the red over the, the decade or more since I started looking at this. And I think a, a, a great part of the reason is the strength of Mexicans uh, of Mexico City's civil society. The fact that there, there are still efforts to improved a lot of the average citizen in the city itself. So I, if I were to only predict in 2003, I would have been, and I would have said, Mexico City is heading for this terrible fate. I would have been completely wrong. I was in Mexico City a few years ago, two years ago. And, um, you know, again, while it's a large city and every large city from Miami to Tulsa to Tokyo to Ulaanbaatar has places you don't want to go at two in the morning, Mexico City is not what I thought it would be based in 2000. It's much better. Part of the joy of research is saying, ah, that didn't work out the way I thought it was going to, you know, why? And, that's, and that led me to include civil society as a component of this diagnostic to, to assess the potential for ferality. And again, that's a you know, people ask about that term, and I've had great discussions, uh, most really recently with a young IR scholar that said, you know, that's kind of a loaded term. And in my initial response was, yeah, you bet it was, because it, it's, such a, it's such a provocative term. I think it's not inaccurate, though, at at a certain level.
0: Yeah, that was actually one of my questions, as I have my own personal experience. But you mentioned that the term feral city is both, let's say, provocative and I think I forget the other term that you used, controversial. It's both provocative and controversial. Why so?
1: Well, I think it's provocative because it implies that, in fact, it says that states are losing control. The government is surrendering part of its sovereign territory to something else. I think it's controversial because on several ends of the political spectrum people go no you under you undervalue the law and order that does exist or at perhaps another end of the spectrum you undervalue the ability of people who may live in slums to to have productive positive human interactions and actually lead a, a pretty fulfilling life and that there may be that cities themselves may not be the the, the be all in, and end all that we that some people say they are. And it is, it is kind of interesting. I remember I had a debate with a very pro-cities guy, and we agreed, though, that one of the things that keeps the modern city a poem in steel and rebar is control in terms of protecting its citizens, providing services to the citizens, thinking about the human security of its citizens. And if that bond is broken or becomes incapable of being uh, of being maintained, bad things happen. The glue that holds the city together begins to crumble.
0: One thing that, from your kind of your taxonomy, and more so on your descriptive definition, really, of a feral city, is you talked a lot about pollution. How does that push you towards the, your feral city?
1: Well, uh, and usually that happens as a result of, again, rapid urban hypertrophy. If you look at some of the cities that were doing well, and then there's a huge flux of people, influx of people, either because jobs have suddenly opened or because other pressures are moving populations, existing city services get overwhelmed. And so sewers start backing up and don't work and open sewers occur. And and the next thing you know, you have a situation where a river, which is normally fairly clean under, after high rains, produces fecal blooms in the offshore waters. It, it's a, it provides an environment which is, again, kind of a breeding ground for disease. There's a reason why modern sanitation is, a, is one of the miracles of the modern world. There are parts of some cities uh, where it's they're almost no man's lands, not because buying gangs control, but because the toxicity of the area is so high that merely people can't really live there. Uh, and so in the United States, we take so much for granted. We take clean water that comes out of a tap. We take power that's pretty consistent most of the time. We take the fact that our, our waste treatment and disposal is usually pretty good. There are clearly exceptions, Flint, Michigan, and lead in the water. But for the most part, U.S. citizens live in this wonderful world where services work and you don't have to worry about buying water in a plastic bag from somebody and then how do you how do you deal with waste and everything else that, that much of the world does and uh, as a result i think the pollution is a significant part and it's also in, increased by the fact that if you don't have reliable heat or cooking fuel or, or electricity or gas then all too often people turn to charcoal and wood products which produces more pollution Carls in developing cities tend not to have the same environmental standards. So this collective, I think this collective impact becomes a real threat to the health of the city, both physical health, but also in terms of what the people begin to expect or don't expect from the government.
0: I had the beauty of being employed around the world, but when I got a tour of Dharavi, the the daravi slum in Mumbai, and it's a tour to teach you that slum doesn't necessarily equal bad because of the, how much of, of actual commerce they have going on there with the recycling and things like that. But that's not, that's not what most of us took away from. It was very eye-opening on what not to take for granted in your society.
1: That's a, that's a really interesting situation. And I guess my similar one was I had an opportunity to tour a South African township. And I, I was personally conflicted as, you know, are we turning people into a human zoo? But if you don't go, you are you ever going to be able to actually see for yourself what it's like and meet people who live in these environments? But I think that that, that issue of seeing is important. And I think it is important to remember that, as you point out, Darvai, is, there are people who live, uh, you know, they live and they, and they raise their kids and their families are strong and there is commerce. Granted, it might not be something we would want our children to do. I don't want my kids not have to pick through developed world computers for bits and pieces or or engage in ripping asbestos out of old machinery. But life goes on. Not to sound like Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park.
0: Yeah, there's just different cultural assumptions that are really designed into us and we don't understand them until we get a kind of a cultural shot. So here's the million dollar question. And I know I've seen you talk about it. I'm definitely an advocate. You don't have to sell me, but why should the U.S. military care about ferro cities yeah, or even assessing the health of a city?
1: Great question. A couple of reasons. And as you said before, I want, to, I want to give due credit where it is due. And the, both the Army and the Marines have been looking at this idea of megacities and what does it mean for them very deeply over the last decade or more. So, but here's in a nutshell, uh, again, it stems back to where are we going to be and why would we wind up conducting operations in a feral city? And we could conduct humanitarian operations in a feral city. We've seen time and time again when a massive humanitarian event occurs, eventually the call goes out for the U.S. military to take part of it. Because as, as much as we wish it were otherwise, NGOs and commercial organizations as of yet do not have the logistics, the reach, the manpower, the expertise, the machinery to deal with that environment. So that's one way we could be there and you don't want to make things worse and you want to protect your force and that requires understanding. In a darker sense, we could very well wind up fighting in feral cities or mega cities. In, in, in the process of that fighting, we could turn a city into a feral city. If you look at some army feed manuals, you know, how do you deal with a city? Well, the answer is you bypass it. Uh, you, you contain it and then you let things kind of take their course. In a megacity where you have hundreds of thousands of hectares, potentially tens of thousands of combatants, where that city is still connected to the rest of the world, maybe you can't afford to do that, particularly if, if that's where the enemy is. And I think our common response is, we don't like fighting in cities, but we're capable. But the, the modern city, as you know, is extraordinarily complex in its terrain. First off, three-dimensionally physical. It ranges from 100 foot and higher buildings to triple layers of sewers, To streets and roads that are known to inhabitants, there's an old rule of thumb that says defensive forces in a city fight at three to one are better advantages to those who are trying to attack. War in cities eats infantry, it eats light armor, it eats rotary air, unless you're going to stand off and pound it. But then you have the problem of all the collateral damage, all the innocents and non-combatants that could suffer, raising real questions of proportionality and an appropriate response when you try to deal with it. So it may be uh, the problem from Hades, but it's one that I don't think we can get away from. I think it's indicative that last time I looked, I think every one of the 50 states has some kind of urban urban environment combat trainer. Some countries boast of theirs. The Israelis have a, a pretty large one. The Marines at 29 Palms, that's a, they have a spectacular uh, system in terms of size. And then the Army, I think it's at Fort Knox, has one that's, uh, that's wired and it's animated and it, it evidently produces very realistic effects on those who have to do it. I guess to sum it up is you know, we better be ready to do it because we're going to have to do it.
0: Yeah, I have a whole podcast that you know dedicated to this, so you don't have to convince me. There are some advocates against even entering the space of a megacity based on the numerical opposition or just the, the complexity. I won't drag you into that conversation, but it was something that we talked about earlier, though, about Giving credit where credit is due to, let's say, combatant commands or the joint force, and understanding these environments. I was actually at a conference last year, and I think it was, yeah, it was General Allen, the retired Marine Corps General Allen, who, for his keynote of this conference at, which was the Military Operational Research Analyst Society, the the Moore Society, he said the one thing as a former combatant commander that I think should be done and hasn't been done, according to him, was to prioritize the cities that we view as high risk as you know likely will go feral or likely will have some type of contingency that there will be a US national security interest in and assign intellectual resources whether that's analysts or you know researchers in understanding those short lists of specific cities and using your index maybe we could say here are some cities that are either already red or trending red? Um, are there any that just jump out to, at you that we haven't already talked about that say, if, if that was to happen, if General Allen's recommendation was to happen, which ones would be at the top?
1: I'm always a little nervous about answering that type of question because you can't help but in some ways be seen as giving offense to a state. But I, I think clearly the, the, I would start with the top cities on the violence list, potentially as a, as a way. By the way, in that top 50, there are four U.S. cities, St. Louis, New Orleans, Detroit, and Baltimore. And I'm not suggesting that they're going feral, but it's a it's a way to kind of come up with the list. And it also might be interesting to ask our allies in terms of what they see. The other thing I would, I would suggest to those who say we just don't go there, again, we may not have an option. And I think General Allen's recommendations are excellent. My kind of cynical, uh, if not realist response would be, on the day the army promotes their city specialists who do well to colonel and some of them to general it's going to be really hard to convince up and coming razor sharp analysts and officers that this is where they should seek their their career in the military
0: me and my a co-author took a shot at ranking i think it was 15 cities that no it was 11 cities that we would say hey you start with these there are there are many ways you could do this whether it would be developing a research center that only focuses on large urban areas, which we don't have today that I'm aware of.
1: Not in the military. There are civilian institutions that do that. And there are several conferences annually that talk about the health of cities, but it's not a, and it's not a, and it's not a function that most military officers think about.
0: Yeah. The Hunter Resilient Cities Foundation, which has kind of been mothballed, but that was, a, that was an example. I think you could also just like we go you know, back to the FAO, but more of a city FAO, you know, like an island watcher of the World War II, you put somebody into these environments, expend resources to dedicate intellectual power to understand these.
1: Well, sense, it seems to me this is one of those episodes or those instances, and Robert Gates talked about this. It doesn't have to be a military person. It could very easily be a State Department official at the counselor level. It doesn't matter where our expertise come from as long as it really is expertise. And so I think there are uh, military officers tend to think in terms of military solutions, but I think if you look at whole of government, there may be far better organizations or, or that produce the kind of people that would be the city experts you're talking about, that we would liaise with. And But then we'd have to give them proper due as being experts and actually listen to them. And, and some of those things that we are not always the best we could be. I'm kind of curious. And you, when you did your ranking, what were your top three cities?
0: So the, the article is called Every City is Different. That's why one-size-fits-all approach to urban operations won't work. Me and my co-author ranked the cities. And we put a criteria that we actually mentioned you in the Feral Cities and the Fragility Index and multiple, I mean, because there are multiple indexes. So number one was Caracas, Venezuela. And we for each city that we put down, we put a reason why we were saying more, basically a a complete intelligence portfolio would have to be developed and understanding these environments. Just like you said, I mean, who are the major players when disaster happens that would need to be even within the environment need to be protected let's say a city administrator may not come on your top of your list is but he needs to be protected cuz he's the one that understands how to get the city working again yeah number 2 was mexico city mexico and then number 3 was santa y- yemen
1: oh okay no Sanaa. that's that's a, i think sana is a good choice and i would put would make my list certainly caracas would and the tragedy of Venezuela is it goes it extends beyond Caracas, and that's one that it doesn't take a lot of imagination, and, and not to stoke Maduro's concerns about U.S. intervention. But that if Venezuela were to collapse, I would never recommend in this case taking action without the authorization of the OAS and at a multinational level. But an imploded Venezuela is, is a danger to the region, the people of Venezuela, Caracas, and this the idea of putting Caracas back on its feet is extraordinarily difficult, and if you don't have some expertise, uh, real expertise, like who does understand uh, power and water, uh, how do you get Pemexa going again, the uh, the petroleum company of Venezuela, because you're going to need that revenue. Those things are, are critical. How what are you going to handle? How are you going to handle money? Because I remember there was a there was an exercise I was involved in a while back that. The idea was we had to fix a occupied megacity. And as well-meaning as many of the participants in Next were, the, the scope and the scale of the event was clearly just missing in a lot of places. It's like, no, you're going to have to triple and quadruple the estimates of how much food you're going to have to bring in and how you're going to do it. I think we could have a really interesting discussion over adult beverages about Mexico City. But I think SANA because of war and Caracas because of just the, the, the tragedy of the Chavez-Maduro regimes is one that I don't think anybody would have serious disagreements with. Now, obviously, having said that, there are people who want to write me and say you're wrong. But uh, I do think that those those are those two are very are very de- very defensible of being on any list of cities to be concerned. With.
0: You know, this list is basically just understanding better. And I have my own scar tissue just being in Operation Iraqi Freedom one, being in Baghdad, and seeing seeing all the metrics on your your taxonomy dissolve overnight seeing literally the money changing overnight to where that money is no longer good. You need to print some more, but we don't have any. But understanding, I had no clue on how to understand cities and whether I should have or not is a, another question about general purpose military force versus specialist. And like you said, it's not necessarily you becoming a specialist, it's you knowing who to know or who to listen to.
1: Yeah, I'm reminded of, in the early days of the conversation with Iraq, the there was a, a wonderful scholar named Phoebe Maher who had been within the academy viewed as an expert for many many years. She was suddenly in high demand. Uh, but you're you're right. It doesn't really matter who has the expertise as long as you can access the expertise. And that expertise can come from very unusual sources. And we shouldn't we shouldn't be predisposed to negate
0: them just because they're unusual. For sure. You know, Back to our both of our friends, Max Brooks. I consider him an expert in many areas, and he is in high demand today because of just his his, his years of research into disaster preparedness, supply chain management, you name it. But some people might laugh at you about listening to them. I definitely don't.
1: No, I don't think so. And, and the quote Admiral Wisecup many years ago, and his issue was, look, this is a this is a book about what happens when you come across a threat or an event that you are not prepared for, that's outside of your expertise and that your normal reactions may be counterproductive in a big way. And so, you know, credit to Max for coming up with the idea and making it, Kind of using that Studs turkel approach and coming up with a very readable book, but it, it also raises, I think, extraordinarily important questions. Once you cast it in the in the realm of what if this is something wide sweeping and that we are that conventional responses don't work against. Pandemic is the first thing that comes to mind when you when you
0: do that. Okay, so Dr. Norton, this has been a fascinating conversation for me, and I know it's going to be one for our, our listeners. And I really appreciate you taking time to be with us.
1: It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for
0: asking me. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.